You're listening to the podcast of The Capital Church. The Capital Church is a local church in Columbus, Ohio, that exists to see more people become more like Jesus in Columbus and The Ohio State University. For more information on our church, please visit us at cptlchurch.com or follow us on social media at cptlchurch. Thanks so much for joining us. You can go ahead and have a seat. As always, uh, welcome to the Capital Church. My name is Luke. Um, one of the pastors here on staff. A shout out for being here on Super Bowl Sunday. I know uh, that a lot of people have plans throughout the day, and those are all really good things. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday, even if your team is not involved or you don't care at all, it is always an opportunity uh, to just get around people you love, have good food, and so I hope that's what's ahead for you. If you want to watch the Super Bowl and have nobody to watch it with and would prefer that, you can literally talk to me um, and you can come over to my house, literally. Our city group is just gonna be at our house, uh, hanging out, watching the game. That invitation is out there for you. So you want some food, you wanna be around people you've never met but want to meet them, uh, that invitation is always there for you. Uh, one of the things I want to put before us uh, pretty often is that this is a really safe place for you to be, whether it's your first time, first time in a while, uh, or you're somebody who's here pretty often. This is a safe place for you to be, coming off the best days and the best weeks of your life, it's also a safe place for you to be coming off the worst days and the worst weeks of your life. You can actually sit here and relax. You can sit here and breathe. In fact, everything that we've decided to do in gatherings like this is because we want really, really good things for you, knowing that people around this room believe different things about a lot of different subjects, and we want really, really good things for you, and so we hope every single time you come into this room, value is added to your life and maybe even added to other people's lives around you. Uh, I heard a professional survivalist one time say that you can't truly appreciate the warmth of a fire until you've truly been cold. Uh, and the cold he's talking about is a cold I think very few of us have ever experienced. And I feel like if that's true, then it also might be true that you can't fully appreciate a sunny day unless you know cloudy days, and I'm not even speaking metaphorically. Um, what, what you may not know about our city is that Columbus is one of the top 10 grayest cities in the U.S., and that's not something to be disappointed in. What it means, I think, is that we can appreciate sunny days when they come like very few around the country, and I've thought about that survivalist quote several times this week because I thought, how nice is it to have a sunny day? And there are people all over the country that don't get to appreciate it like we get to appreciate it. So shout out to your city. We get to appreciate sunny days like very few people, and today is one of them, and it's Super Bowl Sunday, and you still chose to be here, and so we are infinitely thankful for that. Uh, we are in week two of a new series that I honestly believe can lead so many of us in this room to feel healthier in spiritual ways, even in mental ways, even in emotional ways. And so if you have a Bible with you and you're interested in kind of journeying with us here this morning in a story that's gonna unfold with Jesus and several other people, uh, Luke chapter seven is gonna be the best place for you to go. If you were here last week, we're gonna be in that same exact chapter talking about a different story with Jesus around different people. Uh, if you're interested in kind of walking with us, feel free to grab a Bible 
open up to that passage. If you have a device, you can do that too. If, if you just want to sit and listen, that's a great thing too. Uh, one of the things I, I don't mention all the time, but it's always available. Uh, we have Bibles out on the table there. Uh, if you, after our service, just want to grab one for you, grab one for somebody else, that's completely free. You don't need to exchange uh, information, a smile, a greeting, nothing. You can grab one and walk right out the door and nobody will stop you. They're literally there for that. So if you want a Bible, don't have one, you want to get one for family or friends, go ahead and grab as many as you want out there. Luke 7 is going to be the best place for you to go right now. Now, unfortunately, so many of us uh, can quickly call to mind the things we don't like about ourselves, the things we wish we could change, the things that we think hold us back. We are often people that quickly can call to mind our limitations. And I think there are some stories in the biographies of Jesus that I think for us, we can enter into a room like this and into a conversation on limitations and we can feel really held back by some things that I don't think is even God's intention for us to be held back by. I think there are ways to leverage some limitations in our life to lead you to a life that's more flourishing, that has more value, not only in your life, but in the lives of the people around you. I think that's possible. And last week, we kicked off this series trying to answer this question of like, what do you do when you come face to face with your inability and lack of power to change your situation? That can be a miserably limiting place to be, but I think we can leverage that and actually go to the one who can impact our situations and rest in peace and trust that there is a God who is all-powerful and he can impact your situations in a way that's good for you. Maybe not in a way that you would define as good, but he would define as good. That invitation is for you. And here this morning, I want to talk about another limitation that I think some walk into this room drowning in what you think is limiting you, and I think it can be leveraged and unleashed to add so much value and freedom into your life here in Luke 7. This is what we're gonna be up to here this month in the biographies of Jesus. And so let me bring you to this story right towards the end of Luke 7 in verse 36. So you wanna find Luke, big, bold, seven, small, bold, 36. Let me bring us into this story. Here's what it says. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, if you're around here, I interrupt stories constantly, and so apologies. But I'm going to continue to interrupt stories because I think some of these interruptions, getting some things on the table is going to really help us find some value. We have talked from this stage, even this calendar year, about Jesus going into the houses of people, having meals with people that had all kinds of labels, came from all kinds of different reputations and backgrounds in which cities hated them. Typically, Jesus spent his time around really sinful people. And this time, it's a little bit nuanced. It says there's a Pharisee that invites Jesus over for dinner, and Jesus decides to do that. Now, a Pharisee was a leading religious leader here in this world, in this time and space. They were often throughout the biographies of Jesus on the opposite side of Jesus. In fact, they hated Jesus for things like the story that's going to unfold in front of us here. When they looked at a world, what they saw themselves as was spiritually and morally better than other people. Textbook self-righteousness. This is how they were viewed. In fact, 
they saw themselves as spiritually and morally better than everybody else. And really their evaluation wasn't all that off. In a contest of who reads their Bible more, just genuinely, even in this room, they're going to win that. Uh, To be a Pharisee, you had to have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of your Bible. That's 5,853 verses that they didn't just read. They would have those five books memorized to just qualify as a Pharisee. And no judgment. If some of you started this year and you're like, I'm going to read through the Bible really high chance you didn't even read through those five books. Again, no judgment. That's some dry content at times. And yet they were devoted to this particular book. And so in a contest of like who reads their Bible more, maybe even who knows the Bible more, the Pharisees are gonna win that. In a contest in who's more generous, just straightforward, they're gonna win even in a room like this. A contest on who's more sold out to the mission they believe in. They're going to win a contest on who goes to church more. Straight up, they're going to win all of these contests. They were professionals at looking and acting religious. And so Jesus gets invited to the house of a man who is a professional, religious-looking person. And around Jesus are more other religious professionals. But there's going to be a shake up to this story. Here's what happens. Let me start again in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. So this woman enters into a scene with religious elite people who are self-righteous and look down on everybody else. But she knows Jesus is in this house, and so she walks into this house carrying with her a bag of some labels. Now, side note, Jesus is never the one in these environments that's labeling people this way. In fact, Jesus is in the business of taking labels other people give you and exchanging them for some other labels like loved, approved, accepted, child, chosen, forgiven, valued. It's interesting to note that this woman comes in with a reputation. For her to be labeled as the immoral woman is likely in this time period a statement about the sexual past she has lived up to this point. Likely, she was a prostitute professionally, and she comes into this room carrying labels from her city, not from Jesus. Jesus is not in the business of looking at people like us, calling us by name based upon our greatest mistakes and our greatest sins. He doesn't timestamp us on some low moments we've had in the past, and then we're always that kind of person. He's actually in the business of changing all of that, giving new labels. And yet this woman carrying a bag of labels walks into this room with her an expensive bottle of perfume. Verse 38. Then she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. So so understand what she's up to right now. She has gotten to the feet of Jesus in a room of people who are judging her and feel better than her morally. And yet she's kind of like disregarded that. 
She's gotten to the feet of Jesus. She's crying so hard about who Jesus is and what that means for somebody like her that she's wetting the feet of Jesus. Now, we've talked a little bit this year already that this took place in the Middle East in a time period where everybody wore sandals and they walked on dirt roads and primarily their only mode of transportation was their own two feet. And so when you would go into these houses, you have really dirty feet that are calloused and gross and mixed with mud and sweat. Like this is disgusting for most of us in the room. Like if you had a fresh bowl of Aquafina water and a fresh white towel, many of us would still be disgusted by cleaning somebody's feet like this. And this woman is wetting the feet of Jesus with her tears. And she's not even using a towel, she's using her hair to wipe off everything that's gross from the feet of Jesus while she puts expensive perfume that maybe has cost her everything to get. She's perfuming Jesus's now clean feet while she's kissing his feet. This is what she's up to. And I love that she's doing this in a crowd of people who are standing back like, in judgment, and they've now been around Jesus for some undefined amount of time. I mean, he's over there to have dinner with them. And she interrupts this scene and is starting to treat Jesus in a completely different way than everybody else. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Like there's this perception that was around Jesus by religious people. I honestly think it's kind of true today in a way that's, that's hurtful, upsetting, and disappointing. And that is that if we know Jesus, then we know he's righteous and he's holy and he's upright and he's perfect. And so there's this perception that there's a level of sinfulness. There's a kind of sinner that's not really welcomed around Jesus. And so this perception is like, wait, what I know about Jesus and what I know about this woman is if Jesus actually knew who she was, if Jesus knew the kinds of things that are in her past, if he knew the life she's lived up to this point, he wouldn't let her touch him. He would actually probably send her out of this house because sinners like this don't belong around people like Jesus. And so let me, let me do another side note. I don't want followers of Jesus in the room under the excuse of faithfulness to Jesus to act nothing like Jesus. I want us to not look at people and say, man, there's a level of sin, there's a kind of sin, there's a kind of sinner. That's not welcome around Jesus. That's not welcome in rooms like this. That's not welcome at my dinner table around my kids. Let's not, under the excuse of faithfulness to Jesus, act nothing like him. In fact, Jesus was constantly around people. That would make us nervous. Constantly around people that had some things in their past, believed some things about him and every other subject. Sinful people loved Jesus. You know who didn't? The Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. They're the ones stirring up a riot. They will ultimately crucify Jesus because he didn't want to spend time with religious elite. He was down in the dirt with sinful people like this woman coming with labels, coming with reputation. And yet she sits at his feet, wiping them from her tears with her hair expensive perfume on his feet, kissing his feet, overwhelmed in thankfulness and worship of who he is and what he's done for somebody like her. And then verse 40, Jesus answered his thoughts. How does it land on you that this guy doesn't have to even ask that question out loud? Does it land on you a little unsettling? that Jesus is gonna respond to this Pharisee based on some thoughts he had in a group of people. He hasn't hasn't even verbalized this. And Jesus is gonna respond to the thought he had. Verse 40, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, "I, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. Now, 500 pieces of silver, about two years worth of income. 50 pieces of silver, roughly two months of income. Verse 42, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose? This is the question Jesus is posing the Pharisee. Who do you suppose loved him more than that? So here's the simple story Jesus lays before this room. He says, you've got two guys who owe a third guy some money, different amounts of money. One owes a lot, one owns a little. Neither of them can pay, and yet this third guy says, hey, I know you both owe me money, let's just cancel all of it. Then Jesus' question is, who do you think is gonna love the forgiver more? This is the question Jesus is, Jesus Poses, and here's Simon's answer, verse 43. He answered, I suppose the one for whom he's canceled the larger debt. Like, like that's the obvious answer. That's right, Jesus said. And here's a strong word for our guy Simon, verse 44. Then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And here's his main point, verse 46. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. I love that addition of Jesus. He's saying this woman's sins, and let's get on the same page. There's a lot there. Like, let's get on the same page. Jesus knows our failures, our mistakes. It should be a little unsettling that Jesus even knows our thoughts. But here's the good news. He said, her sins, while they're a lot there, They have been forgiven. 
So she has shown me much love, but a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here's Jesus's point. If you think that you have been forgiven of a lifetime of sin and you can quickly call to mind what populates that back, then you are going to be the type of person that loves Jesus and worships Jesus with more reality than somebody who doesn't think they've got a big bag of sin. You're gonna actually love Jesus, respond to Jesus with more emotion, with more physical movement, with more genuine and authentic worship if you're convinced you've got a whole past. You've got all kinds of decisions, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of mistakes that he has forgiven. A lifetime behind you, currently and ahead of you. If you're convinced that Jesus has overwhelmingly paid for your sin, then his point is you're gonna love and worship him in a unique way. But the opposite is also true. If you're convinced you're morally above, if you're convinced in your own self-righteousness, if you're relatively unimpressed with Jesus because you're doing a pretty good job on your own, then you're not gonna love him. You're not gonna be moved by him. You're not gonna worship him in reality. And so here's what I think is really helpful. I think some of us, walk into a room like this and we have the kind of past that still leads us to feel some guilt and some shame. Like when those things come to mind, we get a little bit of a pit in our stomach, our heart starts beating fast and we think my past sin limits my ability to have good clean relationship with God and maybe my past sin limits my ability to connect and influence the world. And here's the limitation that this woman leveraged. She says, I have a past and I have labels and there's all kinds of things that I don't wanna talk about, about where I've been and what I've done. And yet she's decided to leverage that, to see Jesus as more beautiful, to love him more fully and to worship him more rightly. Leveraging this limitation, your past does not damage your ability to have healthy, flourishing relationship with God, and it doesn't impact your ability to influence the people around you to love, follow, and worship this Jesus. We've said to small group leaders in our church, you never have to be the hero spiritually because there is a hero spiritually, and you're not him. And so we don't have to perform, we don't have to project this certain image. The, the reputation followers of Jesus have, I think, that's unfortunate, is I think we have this reputation where the longer we're a follower of Jesus, that naturally comes with a greater level of casualness and callousness towards who Jesus is and what he's done. Like if I became a follower of Jesus 20, 30, for some of us 40, 50 years ago, you can just slide into a level of callousness. Like, man, I'm just not as moved by what Jesus has done because I don't even remember life before this. 
I'm just not moved by a world that needs Jesus because I've been doing this for a long time. And really, that's the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Like the longer you're a follower of Jesus, the longer you walk with him, the longer you live. You just add more and more sin to that bag that you can leverage to see him as more beautiful, to see his forgiveness as more incredible and overwhelming and outstanding. The longer you're a follower of Jesus, the more reason you have to be overwhelmed and stunned that he continues to forgive somebody like you. With time, Jesus says, should come more love for the forgiver, more right, honest, genuine, authentic worship to the forgiver. I remember, I, I, I hated going to church. It's so interesting because it's like, now I do this every week. Uh, and, and I hated going to church. And I remember being a young kid and always seeing this old guy that I felt like every time we sang songs, whether they, I thought they were good songs or bad songs, this old guy was constantly crying in services. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what this dude's deal is. Like certainly he's got a level of past. As I started to get to know him, I'm like, this one, this old guy is maybe as like Jesus as anybody I know. And he continued over time to be more and more and more overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus. And here's what I learned, that with time and with honest eyes of the weight of our sin comes more beauty in Jesus, more thankfulness in worship. This is what Jesus is after. And so in a room of religious professionals, what he rebukes is patterned, casual, uniform response and worship of him, And what he props up is an undignified response in love and thankfulness for who Jesus is and what he's done. Like Jesus rebukes the worship of professionally religious people who read their Bibles and they knew their Bibles and they attended church and they just very casually showed up to environments and responded like it wasn't a big deal. If Jesus has done little for us, then many of our reactions to him make sense. But if Jesus has actually overcome death, hell, and sin, then our reaction to him makes now little sense. Because somebody who's been forgiven much loves much and worships much. Now, here's how I want to just like spend the remaining part of our time. It's, it's fair that we can't go to Jesus's physical feet like this woman and with real tears, wet the dirty feet of Jesus, clean those up, and with the Chanel perfume we bought, put that on there and start kissing his feet. It's fair that we can't respond in the same way as this woman. But the Bible has much to say about a right response when you become convinced Jesus has saved you from sin and is worthy of your life and worship. The Bible has much to say about these. And I wanna read you some statements in a part of your Bible called Psalms. Psalms is really unlike any other part of your Bible that has some poetic language and really calls people into a kind of worship that God desires. A room like this is actually created and designed to lead people 
into this kind of response like this immoral woman. Let me read you some of these statements. Psalm 34.3 says this. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. Like, let us get into environments where a group of people can rightly speak of God to continue to increase and right-size who he is. What we get from Psalm 34 is that a weapon for followers of Jesus to right-size God and right-size our problems is worship. Many of us come in here and we feel the weight of huge problems. And I heard a famous pastor say one time, we don't need smaller problems, we need a bigger God. And a weapon given to us to right-size our problems and right-size God is worship, like worship and worship and worship. And you're gonna start seeing some things and believing some things about God where he's actually worthy of your life. He's worthy of worship and your problems slowly become less and less and less. They become right-sized. And so early in Psalms, it's like get together, speak of who God is and the great things that he's done. Maybe this is news to you, but, but we don't sit down in rooms and, and create what these services need to be from like thin air. We actually take cues from what the Bible calls people into, like get into rooms, talk about the greatness of who God is because that's best for you. Exalt him because it's best for you. Psalm 95, one and two says this. Come, let us sing to the Lord. You ever wonder why we sing songs? It's not because we assume everybody was in theater and loved chorus, and this is just what we all love to do. We sing songs because God calls us to worship him this way. It says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing songs of praise to him. You know, for thousands of years now, when, when Christianity was born, it was seen as anti-religion. Like when Jesus showed up onto the scene, it was people like the Pharisees that saw this Christianity thing as anti what religion should be. Like do all these things and maybe you can appease a God. And Jesus flipped all of that upside down. And from that moment forward, other religions have traditionally called Christianity the singing faith the singing religion. Like there's a whole genre that can show up on Spotify wrapped of like gospel music, Christian music. And the reason is because God has gifted people singing songs in worship. And maybe you're like, hey, I'm not much of a singer. Like either I feel weird doing it, I never do it in my free time, or if you heard me, you wouldn't want me to participate in this room. And here's the great news about what Psalm 95 has to say. It says that really the people of God are to make joyful shouts in songs, not beautiful ones. We actually have the volume in our music turned up to a degree because we already know you're bad. Actually, one, one of my fears, I've spoken in places where they give like a country music, we actually might whip this out. We have one of these, but I think it's currently broken, like a face mic. One of my greatest fears has always been, 
that when I'm not preaching and I'm in the crowd, because I've seen this happen before, they would accidentally bring my mic on in the speakers, and so me singing would land on everybody like I was up on stage. I have actually tested the mic during music at times. Like, hey, can, every, can anybody hear me? Am I good to go here? And when I don't get a reaction from the band, I'm like, okay, smooth sailing, I can now participate. We actually turn the volume to a point in here because we don't want you to feel held back. We actually turn up the volume in here because what God wants is a level of celebration that is joyful, shouts and praise for who he is and what he's done. And we're convinced if it was pretty quiet in here, you would be reserved because you're unsure of if you want everybody to hear your voice. And so one of the reasons we even have the volume at the place we do is because we want an environment where you feel free to shout, to clap, to make joyful, not beautiful sound. And let me be really honest with you. I think some of us would claim to be followers of Jesus, which means we would say that we have found ultimate joy in who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And sometimes I feel like if we honestly feel that joy, somebody should let our body language know. Like we, we sang a song already this morning that says, I stand on the chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus on this body-raising, prodigal-saving. That's me. That's you. Powerful name of Jesus. And what God is saying is, if you have found ultimate joy in who Jesus is and what he's done, somebody should tell your body and your face that a room like this feels like there is something to be joyful over, there is something to celebrate. Because in no other context in most of our lives, in no other context, are we comfortable saying, I have an internal joy, I have an internal happiness, and I'm going to express that like this. Like we're uncomfortable with that. Our marriages, we're uncomfortable with that. I, I have young kids. Sometimes they bring me drawings that straight up aren't good. And you know what I do? I, I try to physically respond like, hey, this actually leads me to joy. This painting, it's not good. That there's colors mixed. It's not of anything. Brooks just this week, uh, he's been in some swim lessons. My in-laws gifted that for him for his birthday and he moved from level two to three. And here's the reality. It's not that big of a deal. It's not like this unbelievable qualification. And yet after swim lessons, it's like no way like he gets a ribbon this is insane it's like man I have joy because he has joy and so I'm going to emotionally physically with body language joy on my face say I am so happy for you this is how people who are joyful respond. And some of us will say, you know what, it's not in my personality. And I would say, listen, I don't think that it's not in your personality. Because the same people who it's not in your personality in this room lose your voice at an Ohio State football game. I can remember a couple years ago, I was at uh, Notre Dame versus Ohio State here. And for most of the game, several hours very little to cheer about. And then C.J. Shroud throws a pass to Xavier Johnson and we score and go up. And immediately 100,000 people with all kinds of different uh, 
Enneagrams and personalities. Stand up, shout and cheer with two arms in the air. High five. I would make a case. It's not that it's not in your personality. It's that you think a room like this, it's undignified and it's not welcome. And I'm saying there is a level of joyful shouting that should enter into a room like this. It's not that it's not in our personality. It's that a room like this should feel like there are some of us in here who believe that there's some joyful things that happen in Jesus and we wanna come to spaces like this, right-size it and celebrate it for what it actually is. Psalm 47.1 says this, clap your hands, all peoples. Not clap your hands, depending on what's comfortable and what's normal. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. I'm not adding words here. Another reason we turn it up a little bit loud. If you don't like it, bring that to God. Because Psalm 47.1 tells us to shout to God with loud songs of joy. It's actually God's expectation that rooms like this should be loud. There should be shouting. There should be clapping because it's the natural response to victory. It's the natural response in celebration. Like we've been in environments where there's celebration. We know how to celebrate. We just get into environments like this and maybe we've created a culture in here that we need to uproot and throw in the garbage from this point forward. Maybe we've created an environment in here where you don't feel free to clap your hands at things that are worthy of celebration, to shout in joy. Do you know we clap sometimes, a few of us, clap sometimes after songs and it's not because we think the band needs positive reinforcement. In fact, they're not here to perform for us. We're not here to clap on their behalf. We clap because we think there's truth that's worth celebrating. There's truth that's worth shouting and saying, yes, I love that, I believe that, I'm behind that, and I'm gonna celebrate it like I celebrate other things in my life. Man, this is the call. Now, Psalm 63, four, it's gonna be the last one. You're like, okay, we get it. Let me just land this one more time. Uh, some of us might feel most uncomfortable with this. Um, Psalm 63, four says this. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And I think for some of us, this is a really weird thing. Like we walk into this room and we occasionally see some hands in the air and we wonder, is somebody gonna get called on? What are they exactly doing here? And I wanna say that that can feel weird when you walk into a room like this and you see some hands going in the air during songs. I say, I understand that's weird. And at the same time, I wanna say that it's not actually weird. And here's why it's not weird. We lift our hands to celebrate. Like in athletic competition, the immediate response from crowds to good things happening is hands in the air. I remember watching golf in Tiger Woods winning the Masters with a putt, and there's a famous picture where you have almost exclusively grown men 
with two hands, every one of them, a thousand people in this photo, every single one of them, two hands in the air, because this is natural response. And I feel like how many of those men the next Sunday go to church and they say, it's not in my personality, I don't celebrate that way. And it's like, hold on, if we Googled something, I think we could find out that this is a legitimate celebration. Like hands in the air go up for celebration. I think for us next year, if you've been keeping up with the recruiting trail and the transfer portal, uh, Will Howard to Egmeca Egbuka, that's gonna happen, hands are gonna go in the air. Travion Henderson, Quinshawn Judkins, they're gonna find a hole. They're gonna take it the distance and we are gonna go hands in the air. The Golden Bears, and it's already happened this year, they're gonna hit a game-winning three-point shot. This has happened in an entire gym, hands in the air in celebration. Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell eternally. That's great. And yet I'm saying, listen, hands go in the air to celebrate. And some of us, we wanna celebrate some things in songs. And so a natural reaction to us is gonna be go hands in the air. We lift our hands to celebrate. We lift our hands to surrender universally, any context, culture, and language. If somebody points a gun at you and you think to yourself, I'm not gonna pull out a gun or start throwing hands, what do you do? Hands in the air. Across all cultures, hands in the air is a sign of surrender. It's a sign of I don't want to engage a fight. It's a sign of you have control. I'm not gonna step into this space. And so for some of us, hands in the air during worship songs is just a way to say, you know what, God, I'm trying to control some things and now I'm surrendering to you. My hands are in the air. My hands are off of my life and my things. You can have it. Reinforce the idea. I am surrendering to you. This is natural to humanity. Hands in the air for surrender. We lift our hands to call for attention. When a child is scared, hurt, or generally just needs help, their response is to go to somebody that they love, go to somebody they're convinced loves them, and hands go in the air. That says, pick me up. Give me attention. Give me comfort. Give me peace. I don't know what it is about our current station at home but Brooks just turned four and he's stubbing his toe into anything and everything now. And immediately what happens? He kicks something in our house. He starts crying. Immediately he's going to Shaylin or I, hands in the air. What it's saying is, I need your attention. I need your affection. I need your care, comfort, and peace. This is natural. When we want attention from God, maybe in our worship, our hands are gonna go in the air to say, I'm a child and I need you right now. Natural response. And last, we lift our hands to testify in every courtroom in the United States of America. When it's time for somebody to give testimony, they ask that person to raise their hand and say, whatever I'm about to say and whatever I have said, I am committing to you, this is true. And so maybe the most applicable one to me when it comes to worship, I raise my hand to testify that's what I believe to be true. I raise my hand to say, man, 
I've not been there. I'm not currently there, but that's a truth that I need. And so I raise my hands to say, I believe that. I'm behind that. I need that. Testify that that is true. These are all natural responses. Listen, I, I, I am not interested in trying to manipulate the room to do certain things that I think are, are right. I, I'm uninterested in that. I think what Jesus wants for this room and God ensuring we have in several different places, in several different books, is this is the right, natural, normal, passionate response of people who believe Jesus dying for sin, conquering death, and conquering hell is worthy of at least that kind of celebration. Even if it feels undignified, and if everybody else is uniformly doing something else, like this sinful woman walks into this room, nobody's treating Jesus this way, nobody's responding to Jesus this way, yet she's emotionally, physically, and spiritually moved to treat him like he's worthy of her worship, worthy of her thankfulness, worthy of her love. And so this is natural. I think that Jesus, in a room full of religious people who knew the Bible inside and out, lived a pretty up, upright lives. Jesus rebukes casual, measured, and uniform responses to who he is and what he's done for the world. And what I want for a room like this is not for us to like get to a response because we're about to sing three more songs. It's not like get to a response and then once we leave here, we slide right back into normal. What I want is for this room to genuinely celebrate things we think are genuinely worthy of celebration. And we would react like it is worthy of celebration. There would be joy in a room like this on our faces in how we sing and participate. Because we think Jesus is at least worthy of that. And I think that our kids need to grow up in environments where they're in rooms where people are responding to Jesus this way. I bring Brooks occasionally to our college ministry, Salt Company. And the primary reason is because I want him to see people that he thinks are cool with hands in the air joy on their faces, at times tears on their cheeks because what they believe about Jesus is worthy of undignified celebration even in rooms like this. I think we need a generation that doesn't show up to church and think it's mad boring and my parents are, are here and they hate it too. Just look at them. They hate it too. I mean, they're not celebrating anything. And then we'll go home, shirts will come off, chests will be painted, and we'll celebrate other things. And our kids get the message that like, football, that's worthy of celebration. Jesus, just go to church. Like, just show up most Sundays. That's what Jesus has earned in our context. And unfortunately, I think that shouldn't be in this room. And let me pray for us. God, you know, you know how you want us to worship you. You know what you want us as individuals, maybe not even corporately, but you know us as individuals enough to know how you want us to react in worship. And I ask that even in response to this, you lead us to some better places 
of celebration? Would you allow us the comfortability of being undignified? Would you allow us the comfortability of doing what maybe we've never done or doing what we might think other people will judge us for? But could we actually get to a space like this woman that you interacted with 2,000 years ago? Would we get to a space where we love you so much, are so overwhelmed by who you are and what that means for us, that we don't even care who's watching, we don't care what anybody else is doing, we want to respond in celebration, like you're at least worthy of that. Would you get us to that place? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you, you can stand and, and uh, l- let me clarify what I ultimately think is a good next step for you. Um, I don't want us, for the sake of not being uniform, for me to just get everybody to do all the same thing. Uh, What I think is the right move for you in this space is like wherever you haven't been, if you feel like Jesus is my source of joy in celebration of Jesus, I, I think that's actually worth it. I think it's worthy. I believe those things about Jesus. Then what I wanna invite you into is just take the next right step for you. Maybe that's just like singing in participation for the first time. Maybe it's just like getting hands from here to bam. Maybe it's getting them like, man, I celebrate that. I'm gonna testify to that. I I don't know what the next right step is for you, but I wanna just invite you into, like you get to decide that. You get to decide what a level of celebration that you've not been at, that you wanna get to in an undignified way like this woman, what that means for you. I wanna invite you into that and we're gonna give you an opportunity here to celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done like he actually deserves it. Stand with us and join us.